what really gets my dick hard is Soul, take one. Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast, episode two. If you uh, listen to episode one, we have to say something real quick before we get started. I uh, am an idiot and I got our Twitter handle wrong only because we uh, just started this whole thing. I created the social media accounts and uh, my bad, I got it wrong. It is Metal Up Your Cast, not Metal Up Your PC. My, my apologies. So follow us on Twitter at Metal Up Your Cast yeah. and Instagram is Metal Up Your Podcast and go to Facebook and just search Metal Up Your Podcast and you'll find us. Yeah, like all 70,000 of you that have already signed up on a Metal Up Your PC Twitter yeah, totally. account, we Sorry. need you to migrate on over to the correct one. Yeah, please migrate over, especially you, Lars, I know you're listening. Lars, we're talking to you for sure. Totally. <laughs> but uh, this week we're talking about Kill 'Em All, Metallica's first record, uh, but we're going to do a little catch up here real quick because I've been out of town for a week and... Uh, yeah, uh, and Clint just came over and helped me move a new Wurlitzer organ into my studio that weighs too much. Yeah, it's like a whole ruse for this podcast was just to get me to come use all my brute strength <laughs> to help you move this instrument into your uh, studio. Yeah, and my wife did bring up something pretty awesome. She's like, are you guys going to start playing Metallica songs in this thing? <laughs> <laughs> we should. We definitely should. Maybe that could be the outro to the podcast is a, a 70s Wurlitzer uh, Metallica medley. And they can have us open some shows like they did with uh, Apocalyptica. Remember that? The, oh, yeah. The quartet. They're great, yeah. We'll do a full episode on those guys, I yeah, think. Yeah, look for us on tour uh, with Metallica on the Hardwired to Self-Destruct tour. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As a duo. <laughs> Two guys, one Wurlitzer. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I had a, so I had a crazy week because I was out in L.A. Uh, working. Uh, I did guitar tech for Kings of Leon. And I was super excited slash very pissed off because while I was there, I was staying in Hollywood, on Hollywood and Vine. First of all, the Rogue One premiere was happening outside my hotel room, which was so sick because there was a, a TIE fighter, X Wing fighter, and a TIE fighter outside my hotel room, which was mm. crazy. But while I was there, uh, Metallica posted, and this is current event news, they were doing Jimmy Kimmel, and they weren't just going to do the normal two song thing in the back parking lot or in the studio. They were shutting down Hollywood Boulevard for however many blocks, and they ended up playing a six song set list. And I flew home that day that it happened. Hmm. Bummer. Total bummer. I considered changing my flight. Yeah. I mean, I have status on American, and I was like, I could do this. Just think you could have gone and somehow gotten backstage and gotten the old handshake from uh, James Hetfield. I could have, yeah. And then when I was leaving and I asked for a photo and they said, fuck you, I'd be like, hey, oh, I have another handshake. <laughs> and it could have been like, no, Kirk, you cannot be on our podcast yet. Do you th do you think that uh, this ties into Kill 'Em All and sort of the early days of the band? Like, do you think that um, when they play L.A., do they they find it kind of? I know they migrated up to the Bay Area pretty quick, but yeah. I wonder if um, they they have any feelings about L.A. nostalgic feelings or? I'm sure there's some nostalgia there. I mean, that's where I mean, essentially, <clears throat> you know, Lars and James met through the Recycler, right. you know, the ad that Lars put out. I mean, that's they're they're a Bay Area band, you right. know, but they they got their start in L.A. But it was, I mean, it was very quick that they moved up to the Bay Area. I mean, yeah. But yeah, I wonder if they still go there and quote Mustaine and say, you know, oh, down here it's just gay, uh, gay LA music. <laughs> right. For glam. Which they met <laughs> Mustaine in LA too, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it, it brings up all sorts of questions about them sort of leaving provided sort of a void for Slayer to come in and kind of become that LA yeah, metal band totally. that may not otherwise have been possible if had they stayed. Yeah. And Megadeth, I guess. I mean, that all happened later, of course, but, um, yeah, I mean, Slayer would probably be like one of the, 
of the big four and you know two of two of them being la based bands yeah i, I think they kind of took those reins right off the bat yeah but, and once metallica left but uh i mean it's interesting that back then obviously you know la was sat oversaturated with glam rock you mm-hmm. know and the start of that and that getting gigantic and you know, thrash metal guys are walking down the street looking at dudes dressed like girls, you mm-hmm. know, and those are all the glam fans. And they're just like, screw this, let's let's get out of here. And they, you know, chose San Francisco because there was already kind of a thriving thrash metal scene up there. Which is interesting because, you know, San Francisco is kind of known as more of a hippie, like, I, I guess part of it is like the open-mindedness of that kind of city. Yeah, Embracing totally. the sort of new form of, like... The, the British New Wave stuff and right. this American stuff. It's interesting that there was a thrash scene there. I know it doesn't. It's, yeah, you don't think of it as, as a thrash metal town. No. You think of the Grateful Dead and stuff like that. You exactly. Know? Summer of Love stuff. Totally hippie shit. Yeah. Um. I don't. Yeah. I don't know their feelings on hippies back then, but uh, I mean, maybe they were. Maybe, <laughs> I'm gonna guess they weren't big fans of hippies. Probably not. Um. I don't know. I'd like to think that you know Kirk likes to uh, burn some knock <laughs> off from time to time. <laughs> That's true. It is no surprise that Kirk found his way there in, uh, <laughs> totally. in Exodus. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe they were trying to recruit some of those hippies for the old metal militia. It's very possible. Maybe that's why they wrote metal militia. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, let's just believe that. <laughs> I'm in. Well, so let's, speaking of that, let's like, create new facts about Metallica that aren't true. <laughs> speaking of facts about Metallica, created or otherwise, they had no remorse about moving there. <laughs> well, they had to do the bidding of their Phantom Lord. <laughs> they really did, but they ended up, you know, forming a metal militia up there. And right, uh, it was time to jump in the fire. Yeah, it was just there was just you know four of them, just the four horsemen. <laughs> And they hit the lights and hit the road. <laughs> yeah, totally. Gosh, uh, we're just going right into dad jokes motor now, bro. aren't we? Yeah, no, we are. <laughs> well, so the deal is, like, we do want to have some facts about the records, not just our subjective takes on the songs, which we will definitely yeah, totally. get into. We're going to do a track by track. But for those of you, uh, which I'm sure there are a few, because if you're listening to this and you love Kill 'Em All, you probably know some facts about Kill 'Em All. You probably do. So, uh, but we did want to kind of just put some stuff out here, just for uh, posterity. Uh, the record was released on July 25th, 1983, on Megaforce Records. Yep. Which Megaforce Records, I guess, only had Metallica at the time. It was not an established record label. Yeah, definitely not established, no. I mean, well, they, I think the, the original demo they put on Megaforce Records. Oh, really? The, the No Life to Leather? No Life to Leather. Okay. I have the cassette right up here. I'll, I'll grab it real quick. Ethan's grabbing his cassette. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, this I think is so cool. We're going to do an episode just on this. I have the same one that you bought me on Record Store Day. Was yeah. it 2014? That was last year, I think. Oh, okay, last year's. Yeah, 2015. So they re-released it for Record Store Day on cassette with like the they they reprinted the original handwriting. It's it, so cool. It looks exactly like the cassette that they yeah. made. Well, yeah, we'll we'll do an episode just on this cassette, which I think will be really fun. Seven songs we can talk about, and it, yeah, it's just a cool time in their history too. So this dude, uh, Johnny Z, is what they called him. John Zazula had heard maybe some of their early tape trading demo stuff, and yeah, got yeah. Them, he got them out to New York. To play some shows and to try to sign them and try to get the ball rolling. I think he became their de facto manager at that time. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And I mean, he was like their, their representative. I mean, he, you know, um, he, he heard Metallica because of this cassette and then I think wanted to put that out and then mm-hmm. eventually put out Kill Em All as well on a small budget, too. Yeah. $15,000. That's great. And wasn't that like the upped budget? Yeah. I think they originally wanted to do it for like nine. But because they had to remix it, just and you know how that goes making records. Like right. It's you can have a budget, but it's sometimes it's real hard to follow. Well, this is in it. the days of like recording a two inch tape, and you know things were a little more expensive. I mean, at the time time period, you know what that cost in '95 would have been probably at least double. But still, you're paying for you know two inch tape, which isn't cheap, and right. Um, 
but still a pretty a pretty low budget in general. But they were a brand new band, and that's true. And I'm pretty sure that Johnny Z guy like mortgaged his house and like almost went broke trying to get that record made. Well, I hope he got I hope he got paid back. <laughs> <laughs> I think it might have worked out okay for him. <laughs> there, there's parts of, of you know we're talking about the budget. There's parts of that of Kill 'Em All that. I feel like, oh, th- there wasn't enough in the budget for that. Like, like for instance, like on Hit the Lights, like the intro drum fill, mm-hmm. you know, blah, 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 whatever. When he hits the first tom or two, it sounds like they're 10 feet away from the microphone. Right. Like they didn't have enough mics. Like they just maybe put like, you know, Lars probably had, you know, six, six toms at the time. And maybe one mic in between each two or something. Because, right. like, you kind of hear him, like, very uh, ambiently, if that's a word. And then they, you know, sound a little more direct after that. Right. I always thought that every time I hear that record, when I can barely hear that first tom or first two toms, I'm like, was there not a microphone on those? One thing's definitely clear is that the production value of the record is, uh, there's a lot to be desired. Yeah, there uh, is. But it's also the production of that. It's like... You kind of take it for what it is and what what time period it was where they had a small budget. They were a new band, still developing their talent, still coming into their own. And uh, I, I don't know if I would want to hear Kill 'Em All with, you know, Master of Puppets production. Yeah. Benefit of hindsight. It's it's definitely sort of like the eponymous sound of metal and of right. thrash. Not just metal, but thrash metal, like American thrash. Totally. And a part of that has to do with the fact that the producer of this Paul how do you say Paul's name? Curcio, I think. Curcio? Curcio. Um, Correct us if we're wrong. I think it's Paul Curcio. Paul, if you're listening, you can uh, feel free to call in or write to us and let us know how to pronounce yeah, your name. Yeah, please come on the podcast. Uh, but, you know, he didn't know who Metallica was, and the budget was super small. Yeah. Johnny Z was, I think, paying for it on payment plans. Yeah. So he was just trying to get the work done. I mean, they, yeah. those guys had no money, pretty much. They, they right. had their record budget. I mean, they like Anthrax like basically hooked them up in New York. Like, right. You know, here's some food. Here's our place to crash. This right. and that. You know, but they're also in Rochester, so I, you know, must have had hookups up there to places to crash and when you know one room all together. You know, it must have been weird for the boys too. Like they had never really left California once they got established there. So to make that trip all the way to New York in a box truck. Yeah, like exactly. And fire their guitar player. <laughs> I believe fully that and uh, that it was that trip where they really learned on the way out there that 5,000 miles or however far away it is that they knew they had to get rid of Dave for sure. I mean, do you think it, I mean, it was, it was surely it was, they were on the fence when they were leaving to go record that record. Right. Cause I mean, why would you wait till you got to New York? Clearly something happened in those 5,000 miles where they're like, okay, we can't be in a band with this now guy. we're done. Yeah. yeah. I mean, were they, I mean, this stuck in a box truck for so long and he was just back there just getting loaded and they were like, oh shit. Not that they didn't do drugs, exactly. but he did a lot more. They, they've said, sort of always said through the years that it was an alcohol issue, but I, knowing the ego of Lars and James, even in the beginning stages yeah, and know, and then looking at what Dave went on to do. It's kind of clear to see that like his alcohol wasn't a problem for him to make a successful band. It wasn't that yeah, bad. Totally. I think it had more to do with like ego and they knew that they had another kind of heavy hitter in the band. Yeah. And I don't think there was room for that. I think yeah, I think they saw the size of the, of his ego early on and yeah. and if you if you watch a lot of early footage from those days when Mustaine was playing, he's like the MC. Mm. Like in between songs, he's the one that's like talking and saying crazy shit, you know. I mean, Hatfield would as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um but yeah, they sure, surely saw the size of his ego early on. Well, and he, the, the alcohol and drug abuse probably didn't deflate that at all. It probably yeah. made it worse. 
I mean, they say that he was kind of like an asshole or whatever when he was drinking. I'm sure they all were. Maybe, sure. maybe not Cliff, because Cliff was like a cool Zen dude. Totally. But definitely the other two. I can imagine that the drinking for all of them wasn't the most fun to be around at a certain right, point. Right, totally. Yeah, af- yeah after, after, you know, a 24-pack of anything and a <laughs> bunch of Jaeger. <laughs> but it all worked out because we got Kirk. Yeah, totally. We got the we got the we got the chill dude. Yeah, the the thrash hippie. Yeah, he likes surfing and which the story about him coming to the band is actually kind of cool. So they recruited him from Exodus, which is I guess yeah. the other the second biggest Bay Area band, and he allegedly got a c- copy of uh, like a live show and learned their record in a week. Flew out on his own dime to audition and has been in the band ever since. That's crazy. Which is really cool. And I mean, no pressure. They just fired Dave Mustaine in right. New York, and you show up, yeah, They're, and you record all his parts, right? And knowing that he's pissed and wants all take all his parts with him, <laughs> yeah. Kirk might have been thinking, I can probably never go back to California. <laughs> yeah, totally, there's a hit out on me from Dave Mustaine. Yeah, there probably was for about almost twenty years. Well, I mean, I'm pretty sure Dave Mustaine, as soon as he formed Megadeth and started getting press, he was already talking shit. I mean, I think he was, I mean, a large for sure. impetus for the creation of Megadeth. He even said once that his goal was to out-metal Metallica. Gosh. Isn't that brutal? It's very, yeah. In, <laughs> to use a metal term, yes, it's brutal. <laughs> Isn't that thrashy? It's so, it's so thrashy. What a thrashy attitude. Um, <laughs> thrashy <laughs> attitude. <laughs> um. I mean, Mustaine at one point even, I think it was the Megadeth behind the music, talks about Kirk's playing and how tough it was for him to get kicked out. Because he thought Kirk was maybe a lesser player. Oh, he totally did. Yeah. He says something uh, along the lines of, you know, you know, I, 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 re- I respect him as a guitar player and, and, you know, and he's good for the abilities that he has. It Which was is some underhanded the, comment. Yeah. like that's kind of like a sort of nice way of saying he sucks. Yeah, well, it's like saying, like, you're not bad for a girl. <laughs> it's basically like saying that, I think. But there's some of that rings true to me. I mean, and I definitely prefer Metallica. I prefer Kirk's playing. But um, there is something sort of like he had to carve out his own thing because of his limitations right. that I think works great and worked perfectly for Metallica. It's the same, we could draw analogies all day to, especially in the early days, James's singing, Lars's yeah. drumming. Which, taken on its own merit, is questionable. But within that band, with those four dudes together, was like it's the sound of Metallica. Yeah, totally. Right? It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I have a friend that, uh, who's a huge Metallica fan, and he always says like, "No Lars, no Metallica." Yeah. Which is obviously true because he originally put that ad out. But even sound wise, he means. Yeah, even sound wise. There's no sound of Metallica. Yeah, like of course it was awesome when you know Lars, uh, air quotes, air hand quotes, had to go to the hospital in right. uh, 04 at download. And, you know, Dave Lombardo was out there playing drums and so, Joey from Slipknot. And it sounded fucking great. But they're yeah. all playing Lars's parts. Sure. We can. We're, OK, we can. We're, we're, <laughs> yeah. we're going on too long about that because I know that we're going to do an episode just on Lars's drumming. So. so they're in Rochester. They're making this record. They got their new guitar player. Um, oh, this is interesting. So it's certified three times platinum, at least as of the last time they took account of that. And, but it didn't enter the billboard until 1986 because Crazy. of the success of Puppets. And they, they and they still weren't like a commercial band. Yeah. They weren't like There's, they, they had no music videos. Yep. They just that's a that's a, I mean that that says a lot as like a true underground band and underground fans like. There's that many of them out there that made them huge. Yeah, and before they, they even touched MTV, and they just toured. I mean, they just really like went to the people, which yeah, is pretty totally. cool. So the Kill 'Em All tour uh, started in June of 1983. It was the Kill 'Em All for One tour because they were. 
I think they were opening. It wasn't a co-headline. They were opening for Raven, but Raven had a record out called All for One. So they combined, the, oh, got they it, cleverly yeah. combined the titles, which to this day, I know Matthew Mayfield, a friend of ours that we make records with and play with, uh, we still name all of our tours to this day. And a lot of that comes from just like loving how they used to just name all their tours. Yeah, totally. You know what I mean? Like this is such a fun part of it. Even oh, when they yeah. were only playing like 50 people in Des Moines, they were They're on still the Kill Them All yeah. for One tour. Totally. Which is pretty cool. Well, yeah, and looking and, and looking back, if you have like a piece of merch from that, a tour poster, a T-shirt, or something like, it looks cool on a piece of merch. Like, oh, I was at the Kill 'Em All for One tour. Right. It's fun to say. It's memorable. Stuff like that. Right. I've totally endorsed naming your tours. How about this? On that tour, they share the same transportation and they share the same crew. As a touring musician, like thinking about, I've done tours before as a side guy where I played for both the opener and the headliner, right? And even that was tough. Just sure. the time, but sharing all of that, sharing living together. Everything. I'm sure it was fun, but I'm sure it was also tough. It was probably tough, but I mean, when you're a band that young, everything's exciting. That's everything's true. new. Every terrible thing is exciting. Totally. Right. Oh, I mean, that's looking, true. Yeah. Looking back at my touring career, I mean, it's been, you know, this is my 20th year on the road. You know, I, I think back to when I first started touring and stayed in the worst motels. Yep. You know, being at a payphone, calling your girlfriend or whoever and getting eaten up by mosquitoes and like these just not fun conditions, but I wouldn't trade it for anything. Yeah. You know, you're young, you're excited, you're on the road. It's like everything's brand new. And so what's not to be excited about? Like you'd be excited that you have a crew at all. Yeah, that's like, true. We, we don't have to set up our own amps. This is fucking awesome. I bet that was pretty exciting. Totally would be. So they did that tour starting in June. They toured for a few months, came home. I think they did some like hometown Bay Area shows. Uh uh, this is important, I guess. At a January 14th, 1984 show in Boston, the show was canceled because their gear was stolen, which allegedly is the inspiration for future ballad, first ballad, Fade to Black. Yeah. That which, is interesting. Which is funny to think about, like, a song about suicide because their, like, guitars were stolen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, I mean, they probably weren't making a ton of money, you know? <laughs> like, how am I going to buy another Flying V? I mean, don't get me wrong, like that I'd be real sad, but I don't know sure. if I would be suicidal. I mean, I don't know, maybe he was over exaggerating, just <laughs> or maybe he's just trying to personify yeah, the, yeah. the guitars and the gear, like, you know. I just remember reading that when, I mean, reading that when I was like fifteen, like oh, because I, I just projected all my own shit onto what that song might be about. Yeah. Love lost and deep deeper shit and remember hearing like, oh, they they had their gear stolen and James was just so despondent about it. It's like, oh, okay. That kind of took a little bit of the sting out of it for me. I mean, I can imagine if, like, you know, while B.B. King was alive, if Lucille got stolen. Right. You know, which technically, or it almost got burnt up, I think. But uh, uh, that's, you know, that's a very sentimental guitar, like his original Lucille. Yeah, that's true. Now, Metallica wasn't very far into their career at this point. Like, how long had, you know, James had that Gibson Flying V? Right. Maybe a couple years. Right. But, you know, the guitar that he probably wrote a lot of riffs of Kill 'Em All on. Was he rock? Was Kill 'Em All like? Was he rocking a flying V? Or did yeah, he have I mean, the are, Explorer yet? No, I mean, I think he's the Explorer. Kind of mostly came in on Ride the Lightning, but he, I mean, he still plays it. Uh, uh, Gibson Flying V on a lot of those Kill 'Em All songs. Yeah. Or if you ever get online and watch the footage from the Orion Festival, yeah, uh, where they came out as a fake band name, uh. and at like noon or something, and they played Kill 'Em All front to back. Oh, and he shit. plays and he plays that flying V. When was this? Uh, that the Ryan Festival. This would have been, I think, 2014 was the last year they did oh, it. Man. And they played Kill 'Em All front to back. They played Kill 'Em All front to back. Go God. look it up online. You've, it's awesome. That's so cool. And and it's one of those performances uh, by Lars that it actually is fairly tight because there's a lot of songs that they probably played in forever. Do you think they rehearsed a lot for that? I, they, they had, had to, to have, yeah, yeah, for sure. And how exciting for Robert to do that and be for able to sure. be like, I get to play Anesthesia. 
And uh, at that same show, Ray Burton, Cliff's dad was there, oh. sitting on the side of the stage. That's special, very special. Yeah, they still they do a good job of including Ray Burton and, the, and that family in a lot of things they do. Like when they did the 30th uh, year anniversary shows at the Fillmore in San Francisco, the Burtons were there, and he came out on stage and talked about Cliff and like you know, so they're still honoring Cliff through his dad. It's really cool. It's amazing how enduring a legacy Cliff has in that band. It's how special he was, especially yeah. going back and like diving back into this record and e- even beyond uh, anesthesia, his sort of psychedelic yeah. freak out, um, which we will definitely get to here soon. But what a, what a cool dude, a dude that they all looked up to. I yeah. guess he was a little older, a little more zen. Yeah. He taught them about the misfits and about, you know, there's like stories of him like in the bus listening to the Eagles and Yes. Yeah. And, Shit that they've like assumed was lame, maybe, but he was like turning them on to getting yeah. them more melodic, you know. Which is crazy to think about because you know I have friends that you know talk about if Cliff was still alive, would they still sound like a thrash metal band? Like would they have made the Black Album, hmm. Load Reload, all that stuff? But knowing that Cliff was the guy that like introduced them into more melodic things, right? Maybe maybe it would have gotten even more melodic and more slow and more commercial or whatever. Yeah. Earlier. Yeah. Maybe and Justice for All wouldn't have been what it was. Wow, that's interesting to think about. It is interesting if if he was still alive. Well, we're going to do a whole episode on Cliff. Yes, we what, are. What could have been, what was, etc. Yeah. To wrap up the touring, so here at the end of the tour, um, so this is pretty interesting. So they go in February, they went on a European tour with Twisted Sister opening for Venom called the Seven Dates of Hell Tour where they played seven shows, obviously. And uh, it's interesting because they never left Europe. They ended that tour. They stayed in Europe. They went to Copenhagen to record Ride the Lightning crazy when they they finished that tour and went straight to the studio oh and ride the lightning which we will get to is my favorite metallica record uh, we were saying right before we started recording this just the growth from those two records is so insane i can't wait to talk about that motherfucking yeah, record i know and i can't wait to get into master puppets so oh dude i know it's gonna be fun yeah i think uh, i believe both recorded the same studio yeah they In went Denmark, back yeah. they went back to uh copenhagen yeah, yeah and just recently when they were doing promo for hardwired hardwired to self-destruct uh they posted a photo on instagram of lars in front of what used to be the studio it's something else now it's a okay. picture of him in front of the doors hmm. and it says is where we recorded ride the lightning and master of puppets which is so cool I, if i was if i was in copenhagen i would go find that address just to take a picture of the building no shit because what history is in that building it's so cool was is lars i know he's danish but is he from copenhagen is that his hometown uh uh, here, this is where we uh, get into the part of the uh, <laughs> podcast where there's something we don't know. Okay. Like we've advertised on everything. We know more than you. We know less than you. And everything in between. Yep. Um, I believe... I must be from Copenhagen. I don't know. I mean, we'll look it up man, by the time this episode's it's, over. Yeah, okay. Let's, we'll say, you know what? We'll save that research for the Lars episode. <laughs> <laughs> we should know this. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there does, and they're frustrated. And someone right now is going, you fucking idiots. Yeah. So, is there anything else to say before we dive into track by track about Kill I mean, all? I think we should just go track by track here and um, just talk about just, I mean, this amazing record that we've grown to love and wasn't the first record I heard by them. But, yeah, same here. But when I heard it, I was, I mean, I got, I still get excited when I put it on because it's thrashy. Hetfield's voice is like way higher and he just yells and screams a lot. You know, because he had no idea he was going to blow his voice out, you know, 10 years later. Yeah, it's just that young energy, man. Totally. I mean, yeah, it's that young excitement of being in a new band and you're recording a record and you're writing this style of music that's catching on in the area you live in. I mean, you and I are old enough to kind of have seen 
musical progression in in mainstream music uh, with Nirvana and stuff like that. Things that have come out and changed the way music is. They've ended other genres of music and had an exciting for Metallica back then to be a part of this new genre of music called thrash metal taken from a lot of the British British metal mm-hmm. and making it their own and creating something that people are like, what is this? I've never heard this stuff, stuff this fast or you know, yeah. brutal. I, I was reading today about um, someone saying that even James, the way James palm muted his rhythm, that no one had really done that before. That he sort of carved out even his own way of like the super tight, chunky thing. Right. That even he was doing that. So to just be on the like f- cutting edge of that must have been really exciting. Yeah. Well, and and knowing everything we know about Metallica now and all their albums, you know, here in 2016, it's interesting to go back and listen to all these songs because mm-hmm. yes, it's a thrash metal record, but there's so much melody on it still and yep. catchy parts. It's no wonder that they ended up making the Black Album. Oh, I mean, there's definitely hints of the Black Album in this record. Totally. For sure. It's also interesting for me to hear, and I I know you're more of an authority on this than me, but like, there's a lot of punk in it, too. Totally. Um, I would imagine that would be a lot of cliff, you know? Really? I mean, I'm, there, I mean, there's stuff that, you know... Misfits and... Totally, yeah. And, oh, and there's, I mean, there's, there's certain songs they wrote before Cliff was in the band when it was Rama Govany. Yeah. But still, right. like, right. I mean, I mean, even just, you know, we'll get to anesthesia, but like, just the distorted, dirty-ass bass... I know. You know, on that let's, song. Let's do it. Let's get into that. Yeah, let's just start. Let's just start. So, all right. Everyone's all. like, seriously, stop going on tangents. Just go to hit the lights. <laughs> so let's do it. Hit the lights. Track so, one. I mean, what are your initial thoughts about hit the lights? Well, I talked about the possible lack of a microphone on the high tom, but <laughs> other than the engineering uh, faux pas, I do. Lo- I do. It's it's a little weird, but I do love that the, the first song of the record just fades in. I love that it's a fade in. It's just they're 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 like vamping this ending. It sounds like an ending, but it's the intro and it fades in. Lars doing his cymbal swell thing. And it's then, a cool decision to do that because the, they used to open their sets with that, and that that opening thing was like a big in your face from the fucking second totally. they downbeat. It was big, but they decided to fade it in. Yeah, what's well, it, it's it it almost builds suspense a little bit, especially totally because there's like you know, the crescendo almost. And then there's like Lars does the fill and then it kind of cuts off for a second. Hey, next chord. And they do it again. Yeah. You know, until, you know, so on and so forth until the riff finally comes in. And then it's like, oh shit, now, now we're getting going. That's true. You know, it's a great, like, um, sounding the alarm. Yeah, totally. Or like opening credits of a film you're excited to see like, oh, here we go. And I love that it's kind of a song. (laughs) It's their first song off their debut record. They've only been a band for like a year and it's kind of a song about their fans. Yeah. Totally. Like, this is what our fans are like. This is what we come to do for our fans. Yeah, for sure. It's pretty cool in that way. I, I can see why at that time, if you were 22 years old, and that was the first band you loved, and there's a lot of these songs are about their fans and, and about yeah, metal. Totally. I can see why it's so um, powerful for some people. Yeah, for sure. Why maybe later, later records that were more experimental bum them out. Yeah, definitely. I mean, this yeah, Hit the Lights was just a straightforward thrash metal song. Um but, you know, they they started right off the bat dabbling and not just like super fast drum beats, you know, like the yeah. whole bridge part, you know, which um, basically, dude, that's like a straight up. They were listening to Kiss because that down, that's from a Kiss song from like 1974. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm, I mean, sure, I'm sure they pulled stuff from that Thin Lizzy, all Thin, sorts of oh, stuff for in, sure, in the yeah. 70s for sure. Um but yeah, I mean, what a good tra- uh, album opener. I mean, most Metallica records, at least like, you know, what most consider like the glory days of Metallica, like the first four. Every record, I thought, had such good intros. And this is yeah. no exception. I agree. You know, with the fade in thing. Like, and I think that's a huge thing for a band, especially a metal band or even a punk rock band. The opening track 
especially on your very first record, is what is going to capture people right away. The first thing they hear, and all of a sudden, you got a song like Hit the Lights with that suspenseful, just those chords they hit, drum fills in between, and then they go into the riff. It's like, fuck yeah, this is so good. And it captures the, you right away. Totally. And the, the first lyrics, No Left to Leather, We Came to Kick Some Ass. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. great mission statement. Yeah, it really, yeah, it really is. Although, I don't... <laughs> I don't know what no life to leather really means. <laughs> Does this mean like if you're not wearing leather? Because I guess be wearing leather was a big thing. Fashion well, it was a big yeah thing in thrash metal and, and and punk rock, you know. So you're not really living life till you're wearing that leather. Like cur- but- like like for instance, currently right now sitting here in Nashville, Tennessee, I'm not living life because <laughs> I'm wearing just jeans, a bit of a, uh, a peacoat ish thing because it's cold. We're here. both wearing kind of peacoats. Yeah, uh, I'm wearing Converse and I have an Oakland A's shirt on. I know. So I'm, I'm not really living life. So well, it's no life till leather. So there's still time for us. Maybe we can go yeah, get until, some leather yeah. leather pants. But I'm also vegetarian. <laughs> so <laughs> imagine telling the 1983 James Hetfield that you really can't get behind the first lyric of that song because you're a vegetarian. Uh, James, I'd like to change your mission <laughs> statement to no life till pleather. <laughs> We've come to not kick some ass to talk through some issues. How about no life till cotton? How's that? Is that better? No life till polyester. We've come to compromise. <laughs> All right, so let's hit move the line, scared opener. Should we do like a scale of one to ten on each song? Should we even uh, do that? Gosh, that might be kind of tough. Maybe at the end, let's do that. Okay. Like run back through it real quick. Um, Track two, Four Horsemen, my God, of course. One of my a, favorite a, Metallica songs of all time. Absolutely. Classic Metallica song. Again, intro right off the bat. It just goes right into it. And it's it to me, to me, it's like it's definitely an indication arrangement wise and complexity wise of what was to come. Because totally. that song is in, kind of insane. Yeah. With all of its different little parts. It has and, a mild ballad bridge, you know. Oh, I love with that it going bridge. into the solo. Yep. It's awesome, yeah. Um but I, 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 what I love about this song is it's the first song you hear by Metallica where they are kind of playing something swung too. Yeah, it's swung for sure. Um, it's totally swung. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and I, I do love that about Metallica on a lot of their records, like when they get in stuff that has a swing feel to it. I mean, you'll never hear a Slayer song that has that vibe. Probably not. And and I love Slayer. Let me just clarify, I love that band, but. It's things like this that I think start to bring Metallica to the forefront of this yeah. as pioneers. Well, like we talked about, you hear hints of future Metallica in this record. Obviously, they didn't know this at the time. But but yeah, Four Horsemen is, I mean, it's it's the song that, you know, me and Clint and two of our other friends, Matthew and Paul, when we hang out and have like our metal nights where we talk about all things metal and hard rock, we call ourselves the Four Horsemen. Our group text is called the Four Horsemen. That's right. It all goes back to Metallica. Isn't it amazing we've never recorded... We should have recorded some of those hangs. Oh, my gosh, yeah. Just a fly-on-the-wall <laughs> podcast. That would that could also end up pretty embarrassing, depending on how much That's we've had to drink. That's actually true. <laughs> but, yeah, this is the uh, first, first track on the record that Mustaine uh, had writing credit on. Right, formerly The Mechanics, with an X. Yep. Um, I, I prefer this one. I'm not going to lie. Agreed. I totally do. Sorry, Megadeth fans. I love Megadeth, too. Did Megadeth ever put a song like this on a record? Did they ever, like, revamp this? Uh, Mechanics? Yeah. I believe. Uh, here we go again. Yep. I'm, my head is so in Metallica right now. Me I too. Can't, like, um, like, often I, I just forget facts and stuff. But I think that's the fun part about doing this is that people you, like you listening are going to, like, get angry and yeah. email us and correct us. And then we'll address that when we get those. Or maybe not angrily, maybe, maybe lovingly, uh, constructive criticize. Here's what I'm interested in though, is if there is someone who prefers the mechanics the no life to leather demo, I would like to hear why they prefer it. You know, like that would be an interesting, uh, uh, 
battle round on totally. those two tracks. But it is cool that they gave him, you know, Dave Mustaine has four co-writes on this record. Yeah. Which is as... Um, but, uh, by the way, Mechanics was on uh, Killing Kill is My Business and Business is Good. Oh, shit. Yeah. I need to go check that out. That's a Megadeth record I don't often listen to. There, we can go into this later, but uh, when we do a Dave Mustaine episode, but they're just one of those bands. Uh, I'll say this real quickly that I love a really certain, a uh, specific era of them. You know, Rust in Peace, Countdown to Extinction, Peace Cells, that that those records. Mm-hmm. Early records are cool, but I don't often listen to them as much as I do early Metallica records. I really listen to almost no Megadeth records. So, <laughs> so you've you've got one up on me there. All right. Um, but it is cool that he got all these co-writes. It's like because it was not a super amicable split. Yeah, it was nice that they did sort of <clears throat> on the front end, kind of honor his contributions to the band. I yeah. know he has come out and said that uh, they did not give him enough credit. Which who knows the truth behind all that? But sure. I, I think it's pretty cool that he has a bunch of co-writes on this record. Totally. Yeah, I mean they were such a young band and probably pretty naive with a lot of things involved with in publishing. publishing. Right. They. They could have easily just like moved on and just recorded the record with Kurt, 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 Kurt. It's so hard not to say Kurt, Kirk, um, you know, and just screwed him over completely, even more so than they already they did. They definitely could have for sure. Yeah. But hey, good on you boys. Yeah. Nice. Nice job, dudes. Dude, track three, Motor Breath. This to me is like one of the most punk rock songs in this it's record. Killer. It's killer. And, so and like, good. like the title suggests, like total, to, to me, total motorhead hat tip. Yes. And uh, it's a song about being on the road, right? Like, do you... Motor breath. This is how I live my life. A lot of the lyrics are about like d- driving and yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure there's probably drinking references too. I mean, if <laughs> right. you know, like you know, were they drinking in this time? <laughs> I'm not sure. Huh? Was no, the I, band? I think they were all straight. It started com- as a straight edge band. I was think. the band commonly nicknamed Alcoholica doing any <laughs> drinking? They were trying to tell people not to drink. <laughs> <laughs> this is an anti-drug song. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, I, I just I I love just the punk rock feel of the song. It's like. The super fast picking on the intro, um, yeah, and just Hetfield's vocals on the on the chorus, you know, motor breath, it's hot when he hits that, like how I live my life, it's so bitching. I know, I love um, it too. He was just super young and just didn't give a shit about singing properly or probably even warming up. He just got in front of the vocal mic in the studio and just, hey, this is how I sing it, and I'm just gonna scream like I do at shows. That's what it's great about this record and all these songs is he's probably just. I'm sure the producer had his input, but. If you listen to the No Life to Leather cassette and some of these songs that were on that, there's not much different. Right. You know, and that's what I love about Motor Breath is that it, 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 to me, it sounds like this song that was probably a really good song to play live and the crowd reacted well to it. And they, Hetfield probably just sang it exactly like it did live. Yeah. It's it's actually what's kind of charming about the record is it it does sound super raw. There's not a lot of like production tricks, not a lot of gimmicks. Yeah, totally. It really does sound like those four dudes in a room doing what they were doing at that time. Yeah, totally. And it does feel super immediate and powerful. I also love how kind of punky it is. And yeah, totally. Um, yeah, it doesn't really let up. It doesn't let up. It's fun. I, I, it's not like a super standout song for me in the pantheon of Metallica songs, right. but it's super fun. I like it a lot. Totally. Yeah, and and they and they still play it to this day, which is awesome. Uh, do you still like it? Do you still like? Does James still sing it? Because you know he he has altered the way he sings a lot of these songs. He has, which I don't. You know, a lot of people give him shit for that, and I, you know, I can't blame him. I mean, the dude's in his fifties now. Yeah, he destroyed his voice on the Black Album recording. So what? I believe, uh, and to my knowledge, he still uses the same vocal exercise cassette that like a voice coach gave him back right. then. I'm sure he has it, you know, digitized now and on his phone or something. But 
Um, but he I probably know, wasn't doing vocal techniques in this record. No, that probably hell, came there's way, no way. That probably did. came at puppets or something. <clears throat> like post, if that. I mean, I would. I, I mean, in 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 a year and a half in the life of Metallica, he definitely has it in that. He has it in that. And in I believe in some kind of monster, he he he's doing warm ups and he talks about blowing out his voice on so what. And wow. He, he said it's the same cassette. Huh. So that was early two thousand. So maybe he still uses it. James. Either way, we're glad you sang improperly, James. Because James, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on to really clarify when you actually got yeah. this vocal warm up tape. And if we could get your vocal coach on too, it'd be great to talk to them. <laughs> so number four, jump in the fire, <clears throat> might be. Uh, is this my favorite song, Kill 'Em All? See, I was gonna say the same thing. Like, I love this song, but at the time, people did not dig it. They thought it was kind of commercial. I mean, it wasn't really like thrashy. It's a, it's a, in comparison to what people think of thrash metal, it's a, it's a mid-tempo song. So come on, come on, jump in the fire. <laughs> it had that great like crowd yeah. moment. Yeah, totally. And it's like a song where he's singing from the point of view of Satan, which is awesome. Which he, you know, he never really did much of that. How many songs is, do they have about Satan? Is this the only one? About actually about Satan? Because <laughs> I, I believe the song is sung from the point of view of like. Some sort of like hellish demon, Satan, sure. that's saying basically, "Come jump in the well, fire." Would you remember the "Jump in the Fire" T-shirt with like the big demon, like with flames around him? Yeah, yeah. it's a great design. But um, designed by Satan. Yeah, yeah, he designed it, <laughs> sent it up from the underworld. Um, but this, you know, that, 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 I think that's also what's cool about Metallica and what has probably gotten them the success or part of it was, you know, there's bands like Slayer that yeah they become a huge band, but every song is about that. And that's kind of boring. It's, I, I, I mean, it's totally cool, but agree. it's like it's like after a while, it's like okay, uh, cool. You wrote another song about the devil or I, demons. I, or I agree. Heroin. I I believe me. I love God hates us all. I love Christ illusion. I love S- Slayer's whole evil right. shit, and it's great for them. Yeah, Carrie King has some serious problems with organized <laughs> religion, and that's great. But it 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 wouldn't really make sense for for like a metallic record to be filled with it. But I am glad that there's one in there. Right. And this is kind of the one. I love that chorus. Phantom Lord. There's Phantom Lord, but yeah. I don't know what that's about. Yeah. Either way, I guess my point being is that I think I think it's good that they, they didn't hit Phil didn't stick with one, you know, subject. I do too. I don't think they'd be the band that they are today if he hadn't. You know, I think he's. You know, you know, it's it's it's. I think kind of a weird thing to say with a, a metal band. You don't often say like, "Oh, he's a songwriter." Sure, you know, like, sure they're writing songs, right? But when you think of a song, when I when I say the term songwriter, I think of people that are writing stories. I, I and totally like, in depth things like you know a James Taylor or a Johnny Cash or whatever. Um, and I think Hetfield is a songwriter. I, I think he's one of the f- first, if not the first, of a, the American sort of um, thrash who was doing that. You guys can correct me if I'm wrong. I may not have listened to as much as you guys have, but you mean besides Paul Stanley, like Love Gun is that's a songwriter's song. <laughs> Hell yeah, but that's not metal. <laughs> but like, I thought Iron Maiden wrote songs. I thought like yeah, Diamond, totally. Diamond Head wrote songs. Like a lot of those British dudes kind of learned how to write songs. Yeah, Sabbath totally. obviously wrote of course amazing songs. Yeah, but yeah, like when I listen to what was happening in the sort of thrashy early '80s California shit, I, I do think James is writing actual songs. I think yeah, that's true for sure. Not um, just because we're fanboys. Now, gosh, track track five. Here we go. This is interesting. Your debut album. Yeah, here we go. And what's track five? Instrumental. Bass solo. Psychedelic bass solo. And then drums come in. Which is the worst part. It's the worst part. Let's be honest, everybody. Why? Why did he? They could have just not done that. (laughs) They they could. 
They, yeah, or, or they could have done it, and then Lars's dad could have showed up and said, <laughs> "Delete that," <laughs> or back then would have been erase that, erase that. But I mean, how bold of a move! I mean, he was that baddest of, baddest of a bass player that they said, "Let's just give him his own track." It does say a lot about maybe not, maybe not as much his ability, which obviously is staggering, but about his um, how much they did look up to him. Oh, totally. Where he had that moment in the live show. And where they said, you know what, like we, or they didn't have enough material or something. Maybe. Because it is super weird that on the seminal thrash record, there's a psychedelic, fuzzed out, non-metal bass solo thing. And I've learned learned it on bass. And it's it's so fun to play. It's awesome. It's so, but it's so bold of any band in any genre to be like, oh, I mean, unless it's like a Billy Sheehan record or something. But, you know, like, oh, let's put a bass solo in the middle of this album. It, it, looking back, <clears throat> it's pretty weird. Like, It's totally weird. I wonder what, I would love to hear what fans who were, like, OG fans who were just around for that, I wonder what they thought about that. Yeah, like, well, this is weird. Because it's it's pretty fucking far out. Totally. But it, but if you if you li- really listen to it, and most, most Metallica fans of this record would, I think, agree with this, it, there are there are really beautiful parts of it. Oh, it, even though it's totally distorted, it's and a beautiful piece of music. It really is. Well, this kind of because Cliff had like a lot of classical education mm-hmm. about playing. He was kind of the musician, totally. capital M of the band, right? Exactly. But I mean, I you know, obviously, I've spent a long time listening to this record over the years, and I you know, I love it. I yeah, love, I Anesthesia is awesome. I, mean, I do too. Do you when you saw uh, Robert do it recently? How did he? Did he do it kind of note for note, or did he? Uh, he does it pretty, pretty dang close. I mean, he, you know, he's got his own style. But you, you got to do that intro. You got to do the da da da. Of course, yeah. You gotta, those are like signature. I kind of he has, you know, he has played uh, played a Rickenbacker um, live. He mostly plays those ugly ass basses. I that, can't stand the basses. Robert, he plays. please stop playing those things. You know They're what? So because ugly. they probably feel good and sound good, and they make them for him. I get it. They, he plays a jazz bass here and there that's like all distressed and looks cool. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. That's a that's a whole other uh, another episode. But was Cliff at that time exclusively playing Ricks or what was he? He was playing Ricks. He also played. I think there were Area Pro Twos. Oh, okay. There's an Area Pro Two Cliff Burton signature bass you can buy. Guys, Ethan Luck is an encyclopedia of music. <laughs> Every time we hang out, even privately, just his wealth of knowledge about this kind of shit is amazing to me. Well, we're gonna do a whole episode on gear, by the way. Yeah. Well. Yeah. We'll do a gear episode. Well, we could even uh, spread it out to like just Kirk's gear. Ah, maybe not that. That might that might drag <laughs> just on a Cliff long. Cliff Burton's Rickenbacker on anesthesia. <laughs> yeah, one we're gonna talk for an that. hour about that. <laughs> all right, moving on. Moving on. Fucking whiplash. All right, here we go. So first of all, the song title alone. If you if you hadn't listened to the record that yet and you were scrolling down the the title, oh the titles, you'd see Motor Breath. Holy shit, that's awesome. Jump in the fire, but like whiplash. Whiplash. Well, and so this is definitely the flagship thrash song, and they even talk about they mention thrashing all around in the chorus. Yes, like this is the thrash song, acting like a maniac, and then it's just like Tom's whiplash right back into it. It's so good. I'll never forget seeing um, as I was becoming a, a big fan during Black Album era, getting the live shit binge and purge, mm-hmm. and when they play whiplash, seeing that pit where all those kids were running in that gigantic circle, yeah, and just being like, oh my god. I, I mean. You know, when I was younger, I definitely went to shows and got in the pit and had fun. The older I got, I'm kind of like, you know what? I'm just, I'm cool. I'm going to, I really would rather watch the musicianship happening on stage and try to get a look at their gear and mm-hmm. a little more nerdy when I went to shows. But if I was down in the pit 
for Metallica show and they went into Whiplash, I might just, go insane. You just go fuck it. I don't care. I would like punch my mom. I have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mom. I have health insurance. I'll be cool. Like you <laughs> whatever know, happens, I, I'm going to pit responsibly, you know? And again, it's a song about fans. It's about, yeah, it's like, it's so interesting that they were doing that so much. Like he's basically telling their fans, this is what we do. This is how shit goes down with yeah, us. Yeah, totally. It's awesome. Yeah, and I'm so glad they still play. I mean, they, they really play every song on this record still. I mean, they obviously have to swap a lot of it out because they have so many records now, but what a, you know, a great song. I mean, it definitely one, I mean, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Phantom Lord. All right, Phantom Lord, here we go. And, uh, and another, a, de- another, a deeper no, cut. Deeper cut, another Mustaine uh, contribution. Uh, which, by the way, real quick before, I did want to mention on Whiplash, the yeah. second time on the record he mentions leather. <laughs> not pleather there's a big leather theme on this record yeah, or polyester but leather alright so Phantom Lord yeah, yeah Phantom so Lord's an, pretty cool well what's cool is that any any track that has uh, Mustaine as a writer you can definitely tell what riffs he wrote like on Jump in the Fire that intro riff is for sure Dave Mustaine's right I think Jump in the Fire mis- Jump in the Fire was actually one of the first songs Dave Mustaine ever wrote oh that's right so he brought it to the band from earlier that's awesome but Phantom Lord, same kind of deal. You can hear his influence on the riffs, you know? Man, I love Phantom Lord. And here's what Phantom Lord has, which will become a theme in these early records for sure, is it has that slow bridge where mm-hmm. everything breaks down and where you start to see glimpses of what they're going to do later. Totally. And, you know, later, but as soon as um, uh, Ride Lightning. <laughs> later you know? meaning in like five months. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when they the go to end Copenhagen. of the tour. <laughs> um. Sorry, you can hear that in the background. My someone must be near my house. And my dogs are barking. So, yeah, and mm-hmm. I don't mean my feet are sore. My dogs are actually, <laughs> literally barking. <laughs> Is that a euphemism for your feet are sore? Your dogs are barking. You never heard that? Never heard it. I didn't hear it until I moved to the south. I'm from Birmingham. So my, my dogs are barking. This means my feet hurt. My feet hurt. Yeah, <laughs> it seems so much more efficient to say my feet hurt now. No, oh, it definitely does. Well, dogs are barking. Like yeah, they are. I can hear them right now. But no, a lot, exactly, I a lot of people in the south hurting. actually have dogs. Like wait. Are you talking right. about your feet or the dogs? Totally. Well, I'm talking about both right now. Phantom Lord. So what? Oh, you know, I did want to say about Phantom Lord. Yeah. The chorus, and I know that this record comes um, five or six years previous to Cowboys from Hell, but the yeah. chorus sounds like Primal Concrete Sledge. Oh yeah. Come and be with me. Da, 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 da. Yeah. So if you're listening, Phil and Selma, we'd love to have you on too, but you totally ripped that Would shit we? from Phantom Lord. <laughs> I don't know. Phil and Selma kind of seems like a real unlikable dude these days. Uh, yeah, kind of. <laughs> kind of a... He kind of. Kind of I mean, a, he definitely <laughs> see Heiled at a show. <laughs> like, I was going to oh, say... we were talking about uh, white wine. We were doing a white wine backstage. Literally everyone at that show is like, uh, no, we weren't. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. Okay, so Phantom Lord, I love it. Phantom Lord, it's a deep cut, and it's kind of buried in there, and not talked about as much, but I love it. It's also a song where I I love that Hetfield's vocal line just was exactly what the riff was. Yeah, I like that too. Like that kind of stuff, I think is so cool and very like early thrash metal. I agree. And just driving that hook in. Yeah. All right, No Remorse. Oh God, what a good track. Dude, I love how, like the groove of it, which is... The first time we really hear that on yeah. this record is that sort of like it's a halftime groove, then he goes double time. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know, it, f- it felt different. And a song that starts with a guitar, guitar solo. Starts with a guitar solo. <laughs> kind yeah. of a long one. Oh, totally. They just really went for it. Yeah, it's awesome. I mean, yeah. Now, how much of that did Kirk, Kirk, 
Kirk. We had a problem on the first episode where I, f- I felt like too many of my uh, Kirk references sounded like Kurt. For all you listening, I know that Kirk's name is in fact Kirk. It, when you when you really enunciate the K, it almost sounds like when someone says, "I'd like some water." Water. Kirk. Kirk Hammond. You know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to I'm going to do my normal lazy Alabama yeah, Kirk. Kirk, and uh, you all know now. Yeah, everyone knows. So how much of this no remorse? Uh, is he kind of stealing from Mustaine? Because I know that Johnny Z, when they went in to make this record, said, uh, we want you to play Dave Mustaine's stuff. Right. And Kirk said, uh, I'd rather not do that. He said, well, just play the first few bars of it so everyone knows, yeah. and then do your own shit. There's a, if you listen to like the No Left to Leather and, and some early other, early uh, demo stuff, I mean, a lot of the solos, especially on, on these songs that Mustaine had recorded at one point in time, are pretty close. Are they the, like the whole thing? Not the whole thing, but like, they're they're they're... Yeah, I mean, they're pretty close. Like, Could you imagine learning that? Because it's just so speedy. I so mean, speedy. It, well, even even when Mustaine uh, did the, it was at the 30th anniversary shows, and they got up on stage and played, like, you know, hit the lights and stuff. Like, he, at first, uh, you, your thought is, oh, he's playing Kirk's part. But, but no, no, he's playing his part. Exactly. How cool is it that all the time had passed, and they had figured it out, been able to make some peace. Yeah. How cool is it to see Dave do that? It's so cool. Or like the big four shows. Yeah, that was so fucking yeah. cool, man. All subjects that will be episodes, by the way. We're going to do episodes on the 30th anniversary shows. I just, I dig it, man. I, I dig. do too. I, I saw. Well, I, they're just being adults. They're just like, I know. The they shit fucking grew you. up. I was reading today about when James went into rehab and Dave put a thing on his website um, that was just like, I hope you get better, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote something like, a lot of people come here to slag Metallica. I'm not one of them. I'm a fan. I've always been a fan. Yeah, it hurt my feelings when they fired me, but I love this band. Well, yeah, I mean, he'll even talk about you know in the even in the Megadeth behind the music where he's talking about like I made this record and blah blah blah, and I put my heart and soul into it, and then all of a sudden they released Injustice for All, and I was like, oh shit! <laughs> and I'm sure he was pissed because you know, crap, they just released a record that's going to shadow mine. But you know, he still listened to it, going, man, that's fucking, it's good. fucking awesome. Yeah. And I'm sure, and those dudes did the same thing. They're like, damn. Rust in Peace is awesome, you know? I like to think of Metallica fans who are just so stoked on puppets, and then they sort of finally get, you know, a few years later, they get uh, Justice, and this I love thinking of those dudes hearing Blackened for the first time. Yeah. And just being so excited. Oh my gosh, yeah. Blackened, one of my favorite songs of all time. All totally. Right, Seek on. and Destroy. All right, it's no mystery why this has become a classic. I mean, this, I mean, this, this could be... I'd say this and Four Horsemen, in my opinion, would be like the two biggest songs on this record. Biggest or your favorite? Uh, or definitely, my, definitely my favorite. But um, well, I mean, like you know, Motor Breath is one of my favorites for sure. But Seek and Destroy, I mean, most shows they do, they're playing that song. Yeah, uh, allegedly, I haven't researched this, but I did read that since 2003, they have closed almost every show with Seek and Destroy, which is a pretty big testament to that song. Yeah. You know, that that's just a song that stayed with them. How many years are we into this shit now? Gosh. Almost, 1982. Almost, almost 40. You know, like that's just a song that they wrote when they were babies. Yeah. I will say listening to it today, it did feel kind of slow. It It is, but... But you can't deny those hooks and those no, melodies. I mean, just, you know, I mean, just the intro. The... It's so good. That sounds like a Mustaine riff, even though he doesn't have credit on that song. You think so? It just, you would know more than me about it, that. I, well, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just guessing here. I mean, it just the, the well because you listen to Megadeth more than I do. Yeah, so but I don't just know. the way it's played, Damascene has those weird things where he's doing a lot of chromatic stuff, and it just, I don't know, it just has that. And that in that opening hook in A, which is kind yeah. of unusual, and I think the opening to hit the lights is in A also. Uh, hit the lights, yeah, and uh, let's see, Motor Breath, I believe, is in a flat. 
So there's some interesting delineations from the uh, sort of monotone E. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're kind of known for the E thing. I mean, especially on other records, but, um, but I think a lot of that is probably derivative of those British metal records. I totally agree. You know, Cause, I mean, I think once they really came into their own and started writing stuff in almost everything in E, or maybe you know, like the thing that should not be was tuned down, stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I think that they eventually came to their own and thought, oh, this sounds heavier, a little more tough. No, and- I agree. I think Kill 'Em All, out of all their records, sounds the most, you can hear the most that they were influenced by the new wave of British metal. Totally. Once they sort of got their own voice, they moved on. Like, right. you don't hear a lot of that in Ride the Lightning. Yeah, totally. Um, it's definitely there on Seek and Destroy for sure. I mean, that's a, a monster song. It's so good. And, I mean, there's like three intros. I know. <laughs> you know, before the... There could have been like other songs or something. They could have been. I want. I do wonder with a record like this or a song like this, if they had so many riffs, but maybe didn't get around to, you know, Hetfield didn't write lyrics for all these riffs or, or expand on them. Like, well, let's just put that one together with this one, you know? I do think that's how they wrote a lot. Because they... it goes from A to E. Yeah, exactly. You know? Which you um, can do, as you know, but... Totally. Um. I, I do think at that time they were just writing lots of riffs and that's how like Lars and and uh, when James when they would get together to sort of flesh them out they would just listen to their collected riffs yeah yeah James was and I like would record them on a four track on a cassette right. and just like hey check all these riffs out that's gotta be interesting to listen to just nothing but riffs like at one point Lars sat down with James's cassette and heard mm-hmm. right. and go oh, oh that's pretty cool right. let's take that one and then put it with this one that's an E and it works. Like, and he was kind of like the main arranger, right? Or in the totally. early days, at least. Hey, again, no Lars, no Metallica. That's what my friend says. No Lars, no lots of, no lots of things. <laughs> no Lars, no no art deals. Well, what can we say else about Seeking the Story? It kicks ass. It's, it totally kicks it's ass. It's a hallmark song of that band. Totally. For sure. Um, capping off uh, the record with Metal Militia. Metal Militia. Why isn't their fan club called Metal Militia? What were they called? Met, Met, Met. Well, there's, there's Met Club. The official Met thing Club. is called Fifth Member, or that's what you're called. Like I'm a fifth member, but it's well, called Met Club. Eh, yeah, Metal Militia is way better. Yeah, you want to be the fifth member of the Metal Militia? That's badass. Come Man, on, guys. That's true. I will say, if I I, I like Metal Militia a lot, I, I think this whole record is solid. Yeah, it's Metal Militia might be the one I listen to the least. It's, um, but it's another it's another banger, man. It just keeps going, and it's just it it, it it's never lets up, and it's. Yeah, it's just. I do like that it's sort of like a celebration of all things metal. Like totally. obviously, it's called metal militia. There's the lyric of the metalization of your inner soul. <laughs> You're yes, rallying the troops, and even the so the record ends with a sort of a fade in of like boots on the ground. Like yeah, we're I mean, fucking here. I mean, yeah, that's it's it's almost like this record, this whole record is the intro to their career. I mean, exactly. it is, but it's like. Like, oh, you have no idea what's coming next. No, dude. And I, I actually, I think the same thing. And I wonder if they knew that, that, that this record is like a war cry of like, yeah. here we are. Here's what our deal is. Get on board. And bring your leather. <laughs> you, they no mentioned leather in that song. <laughs> Definitely bring leather. There needs to be leather. Yeah, you have to have leather if you're going to be part of the metal Well, militia. there's no life till that. There's no life till leather. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but I'm 40 years old and I have two kids and I'm married and I have a business. And, oh, nope. Well, Do you uh, have leather? You no. Have leather? No. You don't own a leather yeah. suit when you go to work? <laughs> leather tie, at least? I got a leather belt. Not good enough. Nah, that's you not need more leather it. than that. Nah, that's not going to cut it in the metal militia. <laughs> um, interesting thing, too, is that um, originally on this record, I remember early on when CDs came out, first CD I bought was Master of Puppets. 
But when I went back and bought the CD for Kill 'Em All, mm-hmm. it had Blitzkrieg and Am I Evil on it. Right, because I think that when there were covers, obviously, when um when the their European distributors released Jump in the Fire to promote that tour, the B side was Am I Evil yeah, and Blitzkrieg. It is. I have the vinyl of that single. Which that's pretty fucking killer. And my evil is one of my favorite Metallica. I know they didn't write it, but it's one right. of my favorite Metallica songs of all time. And, it, and when it's also great, that, like a song like that, um, and Blitzkrieg is, as a young kid getting into Metallica and read and, and starting to discover the earlier records on my own, I just thought those were their songs. Yeah, I didn't really know what a cover song was. Right, you know, I was young enough where like. Even like I remember my first like experience of like oh I, okay I see they're covering they're doing someone else's song was like you know when they covered Queen or something you know Stone Cold Crazy yeah, like Stone then Cold it all Crazy. made sense because I was you know but when I first got Kill 'Em All I was I just thought those were the, their records and then like later when I like rebought it or something I'm like wait there's two songs missing from this you know I never understood that like um, until you know then they obviously re-released them on Garage Inc. but. Uh, what cool songs they, they've become metallica songs i think they, i think they are i mean they're they're um the diamond head it's diamond head who did am i evil right yeah the i remember he he did an interview where he got called where they said hey this band that no one has ever heard of wants to cover one of your songs is that okay and he was like sure whatever yeah whatever and then he's like i'm so glad i said yes to that because yeah the amount much... of exposure over the years of that's brought to his band well i mean just think about it i mean like you know that guy's song was on a record that it was still on there in the eighties. So mm-hmm. sold a couple million records mm-hmm. and that guy gets publishing off of it. Absolutely. That's crazy. And then again, got it on however many garage ink sold on whatever live record it's on, whatever live exactly. DVD, like and then whatever kind of deal, deal with the live licensing of yeah, it. That or whatever. Like, unless he said, uh, I've never heard of them. Sure. They can do it. Just, what, just give me 1%. I what, don't care. When I saw them, um, at the makeup show that we talked about in the last episode in Atlanta, on the summer sanitarium tour mm-hmm. they played they did a lot of covers they were just they were just excited but they did so what they did am i evil they did die 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 my darling oh cool it was so fun that's right to see them kind of geeking out over it too totally you could just still tell that they were fans of music and Absolutely. that's what's so cool about those covers is when you start getting into the garage day stuff that they were just fans totally well and uh, uh am i evil like i was saying before it be almost becoming its own thing its own metallica song right so much so that at the, at the to close out the first big four shows, the all the bands, with the exception of the guys from Slayer, because they were like buttholes or they something. must have been too cool for like no, uh, like I noticed that too. Like it's a glaring omission that the Slayer dudes aren't out. Oh wait, Tom, th- Tom is right. No, I think I think um, I know Kerry King's I not going to do I it. Think, uh, Jeff Hanneman. I think, I think no, was Lombardo was out there playing Dave? a snare drum. I thought Tom came out because Tom seems to be the coolest of those dudes. He does. Either way, but they close the show with right. Am I Evil. Right. Not even their song, yeah. but it's like I said, it's become their song. Like It's like an anthem of early thrash metal. It totally is. I mean, what a great intro. I know. It's so good. And how cool is it, man, that like, and this is kind of the story of all music, not to get like dramatic or anything, but right. it is very cool that like bands that we love, they teach us about the shit that they loved. And it all kind of points back. Yep. I feel like Metallica has always been pointing to the British heavy metal. Totally. Or, or I mean, just to their influences in general. I mean... Right. Whether it was Thin Lizzy or... Yeah, Bob Seger. Bob Seger. Leonard Skinner. Totally. Yeah, they've covered Tuesday's Gone. Yeah. Which is Not their best cover. It's not their best, but I love it with Jerry Cantrell. Yeah, it's cool. Um, That turned the page, though, man. Oh, it turned the page. That is killer. Stone Cold Crazy. And that whiskey in a jar is killer. Yeah. 
We'll get into that we'll for get sure into that on for the sure. on the garage, well, probably on the Garage Inc. episode of that collection of uh, B sides and covers and stuff. Let's talk about this as Good we B-sides. wrap up because we're coming up on an hour here. Yeah. Uh, original title for the record was "Metal Up Your Ass," which is so awesome. The coolest title ever, but yeah. I get why they couldn't do it on the front end. And the artwork for Metal Up Your Ass that they still sell. With the a machete coming out of with the toilet. The, I think it's like a switchblade coming out of a toilet. Yeah. A I hand. told my wife I want a big-ass poster of that just in my studio. Yeah. And she just, her, just she rolled her, her eyes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so they went with Kill Em All, which was a suggestion by Cliff Burton about the record label people. Yeah. And... The hammer on the front. With blood and pool of blood. Do you know where that comes from? Or what I've read that it comes from? What's that? Is that Cliff used to carry a hammer in his luggage at all times. <laughs> he had a hammer around so he could just destroy shit. Whenever. Oh my gosh, of course. <laughs> that's incredible if that's true. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> that's so beautiful. <laughs> well, thanks for listening to episode two about Kill em All. We hope you enjoyed it. If we missed stuff, email us, please. Metalupyourpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter. Metal Up Your Cast, mm. Instagram, Metal Up Your Podcast, and Facebook, Metal Up Your Podcast. Yeah, tell us what we got wrong, what we missed, what we could have added, uh, get pissed off, be stoked, whatever. I'd also like to know like what your favorite songs off, off of uh, Kill Em All are. Yeah, totally. Or uh, here's a fun thing we could do. Uh, if somebody wants to, to, after listening to this, write in, and uh, maybe they hate the track listing, the order. Mm. What would be Resequence your, wh- Kill Em yeah. All. What would your sequence of Kill Em All like to, or what would it be? Would you put anesthesia on the record at all? Ooh. You know? Track five, that is kind of uh, b- b- ballsy there. Very ballsy. I, I, mean, might have, I might have put that a little later. I mean, that's side A. Yeah, I might have put that a little later. Yeah, I would. I, f- I almost feel like I would open the record with, with Whiplash. Yes. Gosh. I agree. Not that Hit the Lights is, is, you know, is a bad choice, but can you imagine Whiplash is track one? But you know what? Whiplash is track one of side B. Yeah, that's true. So that they may have thought about that. Uh, there, there's uh, this is kind of a slightly off topic, but um, uh, my friend John Davis from Super Drag and the Lisa Memory, he years ago told me when they would try to order Super Drag records to make the sequence, they treated it even on a CD. If they didn't do vinyl, they still treated it like a side A and a side B. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was really cool. And so bands I've been and we've done that, like where you might have a, a ballad at the end of side A. Because then it comes back in yeah. to side B into something else or what? I thought that was cool. So they sequence hardwired like that. Yeah, it sequenced like a side A and side B. Totally. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, um, that's a good record. I, I want to talk about everything Metallica so bad, but we have to be patient. And, well, next and go week episode we, by episode. I know. Next week we have Ride the Lightning. We do. Yeah, or maybe not next week because I think we're doing this first few in a in a bundle. We're, I think we're going to release. Uh, well, if you're listening, then they've been released. <laughs> but uh, uh, you should be uh, listening to the first three, which is the intro, Kill Em All, Ride the Lightning. Uh, and then we're going to get into Master Puppets, a Cliff Burton episode, and then start to stray off the path and do some random stuff. And uh, I cannot wait to talk about Ride the Lightning. I can't wait to hear. You're, you're going to be like the primary host of that one, I think. I'm so stoked. It's my favorite one. I'm going to, I mean, I, I listened to that record just recently, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it like a good couple spins in, in a day. In a sitting, uh, and just really absorb it once again for the millionth time. I wonder if any other Metallica nerds are going to like any of this. I imagine they I will. I don't know. See, I, I mean, you and I have talked about this uh, in leading up to recording this, that we want to do this podcast, and we want to be the kind of fans that would listen to the, what we're talking about. You know, like, when we listened back to our first episode, it was my thought was like, oh... Like, I would like to listen to this, or I would like to listen to two uh, big Metallica events talking about Metallica. Even if you get info wrong from time to time, or you forget something, 
or you learn something from it. It's what I would like to listen to. Even if you think his name is Kurt Hammett. Kurt Hammett, yeah. <laughs> Curtis Hammett. <laughs> I think Curtis Hammett wears, uh, wears poly. He, he does no life to pleather, I think. Oh, absolutely. There's no, yeah. meat. There's no meat in his world. <laughs> All right. Well, anyways, guys, thanks for listening to episode two about Kill 'Em All. We hope you enjoyed it. Again, email us at pirate. I almost didn't say that in my other podcast. Oops. Uh, <laughs> metal up your podcast at gmail.com. Or if you want to follow my other podcast, go ahead. It's called The Pirate Satellite. You should, for sure. Yeah. I'm on it. Clint's on it. We mentioned Metallica quite a bit, too. But this is a Metallica. I'm stuttering again. Specific podcast. So I'm stuttering too much. We should end this now. <laughs> All right. Metal All right. up your podcast. See you later. <laughs> Or our advice or what would you say then I would say delete that <laughs>